Uh, my name's John, if you're, if you're just joining us, or if you're watching online, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it's great to see you. It's great to be seen by you. Uh, just really quick, those of you in the room, thank you for watching online. It is, uh, I know a lot of times it's kind of scary to come to a church for the first time. Some of the people here are experiencing that, but uh, it's, it's great to check out a church online for a while, and uh, maybe you're watching because you couldn't make it because of the weather, or you are serving our kids downstairs. Thank you so much for doing that, and my mom watches online too, so hi, mom. Good to see you. So uh, in the seat in front of you is that welcome card I talked about earlier, but also on the back of that card is a box that says, so what about? Tonight, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff, and we'll get to that in a second. But this could probably going to raise more questions than answers tonight. We kind of like to do that. We like to make people ask the questions and kind of find out some answers and have a conversation with us. And that's what that card is for. If there's something that comes up tonight, you're like, hey, yeah, but what about, so what about, write it in that box and then put it in the, in, in the box at the information table after, or when you leave tonight. And uh, we will get back to you with that question. Maybe not have like, here is the exact answer, but hey, have you thought about this? Here's what, here's what this expert says. Here's what, here's what this theologian thinks about that. So uh, go ahead and take advantage of that. Now, I don't know all of you. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. I, I wish I could remember the, the line from Lord of the Rings where he says, I know half of you as well as I, I don't know it. That would have been funny. Oh, well. But I don't know all of you. I don't know maybe even most of you, but I know something about you. And you're like, ah, geez, this guy is conceited a little bit. Just talk to my wife. But I do know something about you. You believe something. You believe something. You're like, no, you don't know me. Who do you think? Here's the thing. Everyone has a belief system. Everyone has a belief system, whether, whether you label it, whether you, know, you say, hey, I have, I'm this religion, I'm Christian, I'm Hindu, I'm Buddhist, whether you say, you know, well, I, I follow a, a philosophy, you know, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, you know, I'm agnostic, I don't know what's out there, I'm atheist, there's nothing out there, that's, a, that's all a belief system. It's all a way of viewing the world, a way of answer, how we answer those deeper questions of life, like, you know, where did things come from? How do we determine right and wrong? What, what is, what's the meaning of life and death and all of that? So here's, here's another thing. Here's why I know we have a belief system. Everyone does. Because your life is shaped by what you believe. You think about it. Your life is shaped by what you believe. You might not like, have a list of, here are my beliefs, but we all have a reason for why we do what we do. You have a, a reason for why you get up in the morning. It's, that's part of your belief system. It's worth getting up because that's part of your belief system. You've used your belief system to decide who you're going to live with. You had, you, you had a scale or whatever you decided you know, was important to you on who you were going to spend your life with. The decisions you make, it's part of your belief system. Who you choose to vote for, or not vote, of all, vote at all, is part of your belief system. What you eat, what you drive, what you wear can be influenced by what you believe. They all stem from beliefs that we hold. We all believe something. And here's another thing. Because we all have a belief system, we are all skeptics. We are all skeptics because having a belief system requires skepticism. Actually, having a belief system requires skepticism. See, believing in one thing, like, you know, this guy is short, not tall, means you have to challenge and exclude other things, right? He is not tall. This is my definition of tall. He is not that, right? We all have to maybe... If we, if we believe there is no Zeus, we're skeptical of Zeus, right? Well, you know, I believe, I believe that there's obviously no, no Thor, right? When lightning strikes, it's because of the ions and temperature, and I don't, I don't know why lightning strikes, but I know it has to do with ions <laughs> and not Thor's hammer. I am skeptical of Thor's hammer. It was a great movie, played well, 
but I'm skeptical that Thor exists. Maybe you're skeptical of the flying spaghetti monster, or maybe you're skeptical of God, and maybe that's why you're here, and that's awesome. We are so glad you are here. See, here's what I'm trying to say, really, is skepticism, some people call it doubt, is good. Skepticism and doubt is actually a good thing. Maybe some of you This is your first time in church for a long time. Maybe your first time in church as an adult because you had doubts and you were at a church and they said, you you can't ask that. Or maybe you felt like you had questions you wanted to ask, but you couldn't ask it because you were going to get judged. I'm sorry about that. Doubt is good. Skepticism is good because it means you're engaging your brain. You're not just accepting what people tell you all the time or just ignoring facts and, you know, looking the other way and just being like, oh no, you know, there's, there's, sure there's proof for that, but no, 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 I don't believe that. I, I feel this, so this is what I'm going with, right? No, skepticism, doubt is a good thing. You're engaging your brain, but asking those questions, having doubts, just having them doesn't really help anything. These questions, these doubts, they have to lead somewhere. We were just in the market for a, a new car, I, I've been talking, if you've been here a few times, you've heard me talk about our, our fun car accident, getting it totaled and all that, and we had to look for a car. Well, there's a lot of cars out there. There's a lot of options. And so my wife, Liz, and I, we would, we would look at certain cars and say, okay, no, we want, you know, well, maybe we want a minivan because we have three kids. And so we looked at all the options for minivans. Well, maybe, maybe we want, you know, an SUV with this pass, pass through. Well, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the Ford SUV, there's the, there's the Chevy, there's, you know. So we were looking at all these different options and becoming skeptical. Okay, well, maybe this one, maybe, and all these questions. What gets the best gas mileage? What's going to hold the kids? What's going to be good for a long trip to see our family in California? What's going to be good? To the point where I'm like, we just have to decide on something. Right? All these questions about what's right for us has to lead somewhere or I'm going to go insane. And so we picked a car that's an SUV, all-wheel drive, and we are so glad we did this week because it led, those questions led somewhere. In fact, a, 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 a guy much smarter than me, one of those smart dead dudes, G.K. Uh, Chesterton said, to believe in everything really is to believe in nothing. You have to be skeptical of some things because if you believe everything and you just say, oh no, that's true, that's true, that's true, really, you believe in nothing. And what are you going to base your life on? So asking questions for question's sake, just because you like asking the questions, doesn't lead anywhere. If you are truly pursuing truth and what this world's all about, why you're here, meaning, that type of thing, you have to be willing to change your belief system if the evidence points otherwise. You have to be a healthy skeptic. And so that's why we're doing this six-part series, a dialogue, really. Well, it's not really a dialogue because don't talk to me while I'm teaching. It will throw me off. And I only have the answers to what I wrote down. <laughs> but we're having this, it's kind of a dialogue about questions and, or, or even problems people have about Christianity, about God, about faith, about life. See, no matter what your belief system whether you, know, whether you call yourself a Jesus follower, whether you're, like, you're here because somebody begged you and you're, you're just being a good person, that's awesome, by the way. We're going to talk about that in, in a few minutes. But whatever reason you're here, it's important to look at these questions because I think there's some reasonable answers. We can find reasonable answers to see. I mean, make sure you have reasonable answers for what you believe to see if what you believe actually holds up. I think that's important. And here's the thing. I believe that if we follow the evidence... There are answers. There actually are answers. These questions lead somewhere. And I think these answers could change your life. And so I think this is really important. And so we're going to do this series called, So What About? And we're basing this, this series loosely on a book written by a guy named Mark Clark. The book is called The Problem of God. And I highly recommend it. I'll probably quote from it and not give him credit. So I'm just saying that now. It's going to happen. But Mark Clark is a pastor in Canada who actually grew up atheist, and then he, he um, became a Jesus follower, and now he leads a big old church in Canada in one of like, the least you know, religious places in the, in the world, the least religious place in North America. And so he's, he's used to talking about these questions and, and having answers and that type of stuff. And so we're going to follow that. We're going to follow probably a little bit of C.S. Lewis, if you heard of him. We're going to quote him today. Um, and a guy named Timothy Keller from New York. So we're going to be 
talking about all these authors, but we're basing this loosely on the book, The Problem of God. And as we get into all this stuff, I think it's fair that I tell you my background, my maybe biases, right? We all have some type of bias somewhere that either, you know, we, we learned on our own or was ingrained in us. I actually grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor. He started a church down in California. I do not remember not knowing who Jesus was. I do not remember not going to church. In fact, like, I still kind of get giddy when we cancel church. Not because, you know, I don't like doing my job, but it's kind of like, ooh, we're doing something naughty. You know? We didn't go to church today. It's great. That's kind of my background, right? And the cool thing, and a lot of people say, if, if you know like how churches work and stuff, a lot of times the kids of pastors are like not the kids you want your kids to be with, right? Because they're, they're either so sheltered that they're trying to rebel or, you know, their parents are so busy they don't watch them. That was not my case. I, was, I wasn't over sheltered. I wasn't uh, stunted in any way. If I had a question about faith, if I had a question about Jesus, about life, we could ask it. I remember, like, I can't remember the exact question, but we're just watching commercials during an actual good football game <laughs> and just saying, hey, Dad, what do you think about, so what about, and we'd talk about it. And it was, and we could ask anything, talk about anything. Now, not only did I grow up in a Christian home, you know, where we were just all Christians, but I actually went to a Christian private school. My mom actually went to work just to pay the tuition for my brothers and, and myself. And this, I'm not going to bash the school. I mean, you know, I got to college and all that. But it wasn't the most um, free-thinking school, I guess. It was pretty strict, right? There, that whole, like, hey, girls can only wear skirts to there type of thing, you know. Uh, I remember in asking questions in junior high and stuff, the science teacher, we actually had a... Um, this, I guess you could call it indoctrination in our science class of why evolution is evil, why the Big Bang is, a, is Satan's lie. And the reason was because, you know, we were, we were so we had this, this debate type of class, right? Hey, we're going to have a debate, evolution versus creation. And the argument we were taught for the existence of God, and it still sticks with me because I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Was this, she, the teacher had like this printout of a circle. And she said, do you know where this circle began? No. Well, that's just like God. You know, when people ask, well, where did God come from? You, you, draw him a, you show them a circle and you say, well, we don't know where this circle begins or ends. It's the same with God. See, now you guys are totally convinced that God exists, right? <laughs> because of that deep thinking we just did. So that's kind of what I came out of. And then, which was more like, you know, Hey, believe it because the Bible says it. Well, why does the Bible say it? Because the Bible says it's true. But why, how do you know the Bible is true? Because it says it's true. Right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the Bible and all that. But so it come out of that. And then I, I got to go to Linfield College. By the way, you should give money to Linfield College because they're not doing so well right now. But I got to go to Linfield College in McMinnville. And it was the weirdest thing. Our first day of college, we didn't pray to start class. The teacher just started teaching, and it actually threw me because my entire life, every class, you like prayed to have a good class, I guess. And so I started actually getting real questions asked. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. And so what happened was my emotional faith that I'd always just believed and it made me feel good, my emotional faith was challenged. And I had to discover an intellectual faith that there actually are answers and there are reasons that smart people believe in God, believe that Jesus, you know, was God and that he actually rose from the dead and all of that. And so it's kind of, it's kind of come full circle for me where I've said, you know, it, it is an emotional connection I have to Jesus, but there's also an intellectual connection. There's, yes, it makes sense. It's, you know, there's, there's reasons behind belief. Now, maybe your experience was different. Maybe you didn't have a home where you got to ask questions, whether it was, you know, you had a Jesus-following home or a, a not-Jesus-following home, but you weren't allowed to ask questions. We don't talk about that. Right? We, don't, we don't discuss that. Or maybe, you know, it just was, you find, you, maybe it was never discussed, what faith and that type of stuff. You just kind of lived your life and, you know, why, why, do I, why do I need to do that? Because I said so. 
Okay, great, you know. But then you got out on your own. You got to ask questions and find out that maybe there aren't answers for things you were told to believe, or you couldn't find good answers, or there are better answers. That's why we're doing this series. See if there are answers. Now, as we get into this, we have some ground rules. Yes, it's church. We have one rule. Here's our rule. Follow where the evidence leads. Follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. Because we all have a bias. We all have a way that you, you either want me to prove to you 100% there's a God, or you want me to totally fall on my face and be like, ha, I told you, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So whether you are a Jesus follower, whether you are on the other end of the of this, of this spectrum, let's all agree to follow where the evidence leads, not where we hope it leads. See, I hoped that the Chevy Traverse was going to be the car for us. Now, when we went to test drive it, and we opened up the back, the back hatch, and it wouldn't latch, and the motor just kept going, this is before our test drive, the evidence said, not a good car. <laughs> I didn't care. I made the, the dealer, the, the, the used car dealer, get a bungee cord and hold the door shut while I test drove it. Because I wanted the evidence to say, buy this car. I didn't get to buy that car. And I'm glad I followed where the evidence led. So whether you are a Jesus follower, whether you're not, let's follow the evidence. And a lot of times when... Um, when people like me, with a microphone like this, in a room like this, with a group like this, talks about these things, a lot of time it's like, now here, when you get into this discussion, here's what you say to stump them. Here's, here's the argument you can have. This is not ammo time. I'm not giving you ammo to have a fight. In fact, another rule that I didn't list is we will be respectful. I feel like I'm back in junior high. <laughs> Which is a good, my, my rules were be cool, be calm, be collected. That's why I don't, I don't teach anymore. Anyway, so I am in no way, there might be a time where I might challenge something that you hold as a firm belief. That's okay to be challenged, right? Let's follow where the evidence leads. I am in no way trying to belittle other belief systems. I want to follow the evidence. And so we need to engage our thinking, not just our emotions. And I think we can handle that. So as we, as we begin, I want to start, I want to kind of warm us up as we go through this series. It's a big series, you know, the problem of God. So what about all these questions? As we get into it, I want to do a nice, easy warm-up because, you know, I've had a week off, and so I've got to get used to it again. So we're just going to talk about, you know, the existence of God. No big deal, right? Easy, easy stuff. Now, here's the thing. We are just going to scratch the surface today. I'm going to be going rather quickly you can watch online if he's like, hey, I thought he said this, but that didn't make sense. That's probably true. But you can watch online and watch it again. So you can go to your cross Creek, yeah, yourcrosscreek.com, go to um, discover, and then watch a message. And it'll be this, actually what I'm saying right now will be online by noon tomorrow. So you can, if you kind of miss something, because I'm going to be going quick. We're going to be laying some groundwork for the rest of our discussion by talking about how do we know if God exists. And often when people, you see people talking about this conversation about God's existence, maybe it's on YouTube, and it usually works this way, right? You have this PhD scientist talking about how we know there is no God. And then you have Joe Schmo Christian over here being like, yeah, but the Bible says, and the Bible says this, and you're going to hell because you believe in monkeys turning into men, and it's all about faith. See, that's not what we're going to do. In fact, what I want to do, I'm not going to prove 100% there's a God. That's, I don't think that's my job. But what I want to do is show that belief, just belief in the existence of God is not the abandonment of reason. Belief in the existence of God is not the abandonment of reason. There are actually good, reasonable, logical beliefs about why God exists, but we have to be willing to follow the evidence. And so like I said, we're going to be going quickly. We're going to be talking about some big stuff. I am going to be simplifying some things. I'm not going to answer every question. You probably, in some of these areas, there's probably every one of you knows something a little bit more than I do, but we're going to look at all the evidence together. So is there evidence? Is there proof God exists? We're going to follow 
the evidence. So there's a guy named Alvin Plantinga. He is like known as like the greatest philosopher of our time. And he says there's two dozen or so philosophical arguments for God's existence. You should look him up. Alvin Plantinga. And he breaks it down basically into two main categories. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you feel like you're in school, that's okay. You probably missed it. And we're, it's going to be kind of more educational tonight. We're kind of changing tracks a little bit than what we usually do. The two main categories that we can talk about, the, some proof of the existence of God. The first one is anthropology or people, right? Just what do we know about people? The second one is cosmology. Is there, is, there, is there evidence in the universe that God exists? So let's look at anthropology. And the main thing I want to look at in anthropology is this issue of morality. We talk about people and morality. I actually first read this, this argument, this call it an argument, but this idea in college when I was reading C.S. Lewis, you know, the Narnia guy, he wrote more than just kids' stories. He's a deep theological thinker and philosopher. And I first read this in his book, um, Mere Christianity. But this idea, he, he makes the case that we all have, you know, wh- whatever your belief system is, we all have a sense of morality. And that this sense of morality that we all have is a proof, is evidence that God exists, that there is a God. So think about this. What do people usually argue about? If we boil it all the way down, the simplest version is somebody says, you did wrong. No, I didn't. And here's why. You get this list of things, right? Nobody says, oh, well, there is no right and wrong. They, they try to defend themselves, right? You did wrong. No, I didn't. Here's why. There's this sense of morality. There's, there's, this, uh, there's this innate standard of behavior that we hold to. One says that you broke that standard. The other claims they didn't break that standard. And your usual argument takes place. Hopefully after the kids go to bed. But think about it. Kids do this all the time. Right? My, my kids constantly do this. You have more juice than me. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. But that's not fair. Who told them that? Right? Or if, if you think I'm making this up, remember the last time you got cut off in traffic? And you got mad because that's not right to do? You weren't like, well, my belief system said, no, you were just mad. You were appealing to some standard of behavior that you think everybody should follow, right? When, when somebody says they'll do something and they don't or they do the opposite, you are upset about that because they broke that standard of behavior. In fact, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I want to try to say this cl- as clearly as possible, but the big argument again right now is abortion, Now, the argument is both sides, whatever side you're on, is arguing from a moral standpoint, right? One side says, you know, it's the woman's body. It's her choice. She has a right to make choices for herself. That is the right thing to do. That is the moral thing. Where this side says, well, that baby is a a real human being, and that is murder. They're appealing to a moral standard. Both sides are using the moral argument for their own side. See, it's a common thread throughout all humanity. There are things you do, things you should do, and things you shouldn't do. So C.S. Lewis asks, Mark Clark asks in that book, um, The Problem of God, where does this sense of right and wrong come from? Christianity says it comes from God. In order to have a moral law that we all have in us, you need to have a moral lawgiver. Someone that decided that it matters how you treat people and then designed us to feel the same way. That's what Christianity teaches. But there's, there's good arguments against that. Right? You know, no, see, our morals, what we think is right and wrong, really is just part of our culture, part of society, how you were brought up. Right? It's, it's a learned thing. In, in this culture, this is right. In this culture, this, this isn't right. But it's the same action. So it's, it's all a learned behavior. What's right for, or wrong for one group isn't right or wrong for the other group. Here's why I feel like that doesn't work. That really doesn't 
hold water. Because if somebody holds to this belief, you can never be upset or annoyed if somebody cuts you off, right? Or steals from you, or worse. You can never be like, well, you shouldn't do that. All you can really say is, you know, I don't prefer when you do it that way. You could never condemn an act of evil. You say, well, no, that just, I, my preference is how I was brought up. I don't prefer that. But then why would they care? Right? And why would you care if they knew about your preferences? It doesn't, doesn't matter. What, what right do you have to impose your preferences on someone else? Who do you think you are? But we know that's not how it is, right? There are acts that even if we went to a completely foreign culture, we would still condemn as wrong. That's why we can talk about things like a just or an unjust war, because there is a level of morality that we all assign to, or why we can actually talk about human rights, or why we can look at sweatshops in other countries and say, that is wrong. We shouldn't buy the products that use sweatshops for children. That's why the Me Too movement has so much power behind it, because we know the way we treat people matters. And when you treat somebody less, as less than you, that is wrong. We have that in us. Where did that come from? Now, here's, an, here's something I think we kind of need to pause on and, and look at. This has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. This moral law in us has nothing to do with religion. This is something that's often misunderstood. See, Christianity doesn't teach that you need God in order to be good. It doesn't teach that, you know, in order to know right and wrong, you need to believe in God. No. That Christianity teaches that all of us have this in us, that it's in us because God put it there. In fact, the Apostle Paul actually mentioned it here. He said, indeed, when Gentiles, and those are non-Jews who didn't you know, grow up knowing about God and having the Torah and that type of stuff, or the Ten Commandments, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, what God, what's good for you and your neighbors and loving God, do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They don't have the religion, yet they still follow love your neighbor as yourself. They show that the requirements of the law of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, you did wrong, you shouldn't have done that, now you feel guilty. And other times even defending them, no, that wasn't wrong, it was okay, here's why I did it, here's the reasoning behind it. Right? We all have this innate nature or this innate uh, morality that we appeal to. Now, you might say, that's nice. You know, good job, church boy. You almost got me. But you forgot one thing. Isn't this all just a product of our evolution? I mean, those who learned to work together in a nice society survived. And they passed that trait, that gene, onto their kids, and now we have this sense of morality because it helped us survive as we, as we went through our evolutionary process. Here's the problem with that. And I'm not bashing evolution or anything like that. If we simply inherited our sense of morals from our evolutionary genes, where the ultimate goal is survival, then many of our moral ideas are completely unexplainable or totally counterproductive to our survival. Example, putting your life at risk to save a stranger. You don't know them. They did nothing for you, but you could die. You might not survive. But we say that is courageous. That is great. Think of all of our soldiers. They've never met me, yet they put their life at risk for me. Some of them die for me, and we say that is heroic. From the evolutionary standpoint, that is stupid. You're supposed to survive and pass on your genes. Why are you dying so I can pass on my genes? They're obviously inferior. You're a soldier. I'm me. Right? I've been beating myself up. I'm going to tell a good story about me. This last summer, we had a barbecue with a few friends out at, um, in this. Our friends have this house kind of out, well, just over there. And it was the summer. And this summer was horrible for wasps. Just terrible. Maybe you got stung a few times. 
Well, we're having this, this barbecue, this picnic, and this little two-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, it's anonymous. <laughs> this little three-year-old girl, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a comfy chair, you know, paying no attention to my kids or anyone else's kids. And this little girl right next to me starts screaming, just screaming. And she's sitting on the ground, standing there. I look over, she had stepped on a wasp nest. And she is just covered in wasps. You know what my first reaction was? Well, I gotta survive, see you later. <laughs> no, it wasn't, through no fault of my own, I grabbed this little girl and start running and trying to swallow these things off. I got stung, it was not good for my survival. But it was my instinct to help something weaker and younger than me. Not because I'm great, but because there's something in me that says that is what you do. It doesn't make sense from the evolutionary standpoint, but it's still what we do. Or taking care of the elderly. We say that's a good thing. You're welcome, Mom. It's <laughs> my second old joke for her today. Taking care of the disabled or the sick. Why do we take care? Why do we spend so much money taking care of the sick if we're all about survival of the best genes? Well, you got sick. Those aren't good genes, maybe, right? Why are we like that? Why would those things be celebrated when they are counterproductive to our personal progress and survival? And if you follow strict natural selection to its natural conclusion, it leads to the idea, the false idea, the idea that there are races of humans more advanced than others because they've evolved further and therefore they should be favored. It's like, that's horrible. I know. You know where that first idea came from? Charles Darwin. Man scans with scrupulous care the character and pedigree of his horses, cattle, and dogs before he matches them. But when it comes to his own marriage, he rarely or never takes any such care. Both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are in any marked degree inferior in body or mind. This idea, if you follow it to its conclusion, leads to eugenics. The idea that you know, we can breed a better human. It's a very popular idea in the 30s. They had, they had conferences, they had all these things like, okay, so how are we gonna get these, you know, the right people to breed? In fact, it was, you know, it was so popular, a whole country decided this was a good idea. A whole political system decided it was a good idea. It was called Nazism. In fact, eugenics only fell out of favor because they followed it to its natural conclusion and it was, and we reviled it. We saw how evil it was to try to breed a superhuman race and get rid of you know, the, the inferior races. Now, if that's the natural outcome of natural selection, why are we completely disgusted by it? Wouldn't our evolutionary nature say, oh, that's, yeah, that makes sense. I want to survive. Right? Let's, let's just go with you know, the best genes. I think it points to evidence that God wrote a moral law on our hearts. There's a reason we are disgusted by that. So that's the, that's the evidence of anthropology, evidence of morality for the existence of God. Now, the next part will get confusing. The next part, I will go fast. The next part, you might want to Google. <laughs> You're more than welcome to Google it. Do your best. So we're going to talk about cosmology, the universe. Look at a, a few evidences that God exists by looking at the universe. And the first thing I want to look at is the Big Bang which at my school that I told you about was basically a bad word. Like, I'm kind of excited to talk about the Big Bang because I wasn't allowed to at school. So just smile along with me and enjoy my naughtiness with me. <laughs> but in the late 1920s, Edwin Hubble, you know, they named the telescope after him, discovered that the galaxies were actually moving away from each other. And later discoveries showed that they were moving away because they had been flung apart by a massive explosion, the Big Bang. What this showed was that the universe actually had a beginning. At some point in time, the universe began. See, before the, this discovery, the leading thought was, where did the universe come from? It's always been there. 
The universe is eternal. That was the leading thought. The people who were against this idea of the Big Bang wasn't, and we're talking about this next week, wasn't the church, wasn't Christians. It was other scientists who said, no, 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 no. I mean, if the universe had a beginning, then something had to come before it, right? We don't want to talk about that. So it was actually, you know, argued about by the scientific community. Because if there is a Big Bang, what caused it? What's the logical answer? Well, the leading hypothesis now, we're going to call the nothing hypothesis. It's it's rather complicated. I'm going to simplify it. This is the nothing hypothesis of why the Big Bang happened. Nothing, I'll go this, nothing times nothing equals everything. Nothing times nothing equals everything. So what caused the Big Bang? Nothing. Did it happen? Yeah. So what caused it? Nothing. I'm not, I'm not trying to mock, but that is the leading theory. There is a Big Bang. I mean, scientists, there's proof. What caused it? Nothing. It just, it just exploded. See, using our rational minds, we know this doesn't work scientifically. It doesn't work philosophically or experientially. Every, we know everything has a beginning. It doesn't just out of nothing. So the Big Bang. Then we look at design. See, there is a strange design and order to the universe, universe that points very strongly to a designer who crafted the world, the universe, with precision and balance. And there's just three, three things I want to look at with design. The first is DNA. I don't understand it perfectly, but it amazes me. That there is, there is coherent, information-filled code in every living organism. An amoeba, right, a single-celled organism, actually contains enough data to fill 30 encyclopedias. Maybe it's only the V encyclopedia, but still, that's a lot of code, right? Encyclopedias were what Wikipedia was before. (laughs) Anyway. Now, 30 encyclopedias, that's a single cell, Yet we know that this genetic code is built into every living organism down to the level of a single strand of DNA that has this code. Why would every living organism have this coherent code in it? Does it prove that God exists? No, but I think it's a piece of evidence. Still looking at design, let's talk about astronomy. We kind of talked about it a little bit with the Big Bang. But if if you look around, we have a fine-tuned universe. See, the mathematical chance of our universe ever existing is so tiny that it's mind-boggling. There's there's numbers. There's a 10 with all these little things behind it that I didn't want to say because I would get it wrong. And explaining how I would get it wrong made me look even dumber, but that's okay. See... The chance of our universe existing is so tiny, it's mind-boggling, let alone it being just right to allow life to exist. In fact, astrophysicists tell us that there's around 122 variables that must have been lined up in precise values for our universe just to come into existence. If, these, if, these, if just one of them was off, even to one part in a million millionth, which we can't comprehend, there would be no matter, there would be no stars, there would be no planets, there would be no us. It was just one of those variables off, a million of a millionth. But it wasn't, and it isn't. They are perfectly tuned to allow everything to exist. See, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Let's go a little bit deeper. See, where did these variab- variables even come from in the first place? I think another evidence of God is the laws of physics. Where did the laws of physics come from? In fact, for our universe to exist, the laws of physics would have to exist before the Big Bang. For the Big Bang to actually create the universe, the laws of physics needed to exist before there was the explosion that created everything. See, they couldn't come into existence at the same moment or it wouldn't have worked. The universe would have imploded on itself. Certain conditions had to exist prior to the existence of the universe. So I think the evidence points to the fact that mind came before matter. 
there was thinking, there was somebody figuring this out before there was stuff. An example I like to give, and you can make fun of this if you want, you probably will, that's okay. But say you're walking through the forest. You know, you're, the weather's okay and you're, you're walking through Silver Falls, right? Silver. If you're watching California, it's a really nice waterfall, you Google it. But you're walking to Silver Falls and you find, you find an iPhone on the ground. It's got a sweet Luke Skywalker cover on it. What is your natural, logical mind going to say? Holy crap, I can't believe that thing just existed on its own. I mean, these are all natural elements, right? So what probably happened was over you know, the millennia that these, these, these atoms and these minerals kind of formed together and came into this screen, and there was a lot of pressure, and, and then, you know, it, it got struck by lightning at least seven times to give it its charge and its, and its code. I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, the, the waterfall probably, you know, typed in the code. And this, this iPhone just kind of showed up. Wow, nature's amazing. See, the logical, and I'm, try, I'm not trying to be a, a punk here, but the logical answer, somebody designed this. Right? There was a mind behind it. The universe is way more complex and way more fine-tuned and doesn't need updating <laughs> like this iPhone does. Yet we say, oh, well, you know, it just kind of, it's there. I think evidence points to a mind outside of the universe, like an uncaused first cause that created everything else. You might again say, that's great, John, you know, awesome, you, you studied, good for you. What about the other ideas out there? I mean, you're kind of pretty one-sided. You said this would be a discussion, and you, well, let me, I'll try to ask some of the questions for you. Okay, there's, like, what else is out there? What other reasonings before all of these, all these fine-tuning arguments and all these things? Where, what are the other options out there? What are the two, in fact, I want to talk about the two leading things. I'm going to go really quick here. The first leading idea of how all of this happened, the fine-tuning, the, the laws of physics, all of it, the leading, one of the leading ones is the lucky us hypothesis, right? The lucky us hypothesis. Yes, you know, obviously chances are extremely mathematically low that this could ever happen, but it did. Lucky us. Let's enjoy it, right? It's like being, being dealt a royal flush, in poker. It's not likely, like Delta Royal Flush in your first hand, it's not likely, but it happened. Maybe you've been there, it's amazing. You try to keep a straight face and you celebrate. So lucky you. But this doesn't even compare to that. See, for, for it to be comparable, you would have to be dealt the, that Royal Flush every time, the first time, forever. Could that happen? Maybe, but if that did happen, would all your friends around you that are playing poker with you and betting all the time be like, oh man, you're so lucky? No. They would think that mind came before the deal. Somebody stacked the deck. There is something up your sleeve. You did something to manipulate the chances. That's the logical reason. So I don't think chance and lucky us is a rational, for following the evidence, a rational explanation. Now, the second leading theory is actually my favorite, and I love this theory. I've loved it ever since I saw it on the show Futurama. Three of you get that reference, and that's okay. But this is, like, if, I don't know if I can say this, so edit this out. If there isn't a God, I kind of hope this is right, okay? But I believe there is a God. That was very quiet. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But this is my favorite theory. Other, anyway. So, it's called the multiverse theory. That there are, you know, an infinite number of universes all existing alongside each other. Either like, you know, bubbles in foam or kind of like an accordion expanding and contracting. Right? Our universe is just one in a, in a long line of universes that expanded and then contracted and, you know, went to nothing and then exploded again and then contracted an infinite number of times. And with, with, if it is an infinite number of universes, then there's obviously going to be one that is perfectly tuned 
like ours is. Right? That makes sense. Infinite universes, every outcome possible, we are lucky enough to live in the one that worked. There's two problems with these ideas. Modern science is pretty certain the universe does not crunch. In fact, they, they're starting to discover that they think the universe is destined to expand forever. There's this idea I was reading last night, and my friend Aaron, who's way more science than me because he teaches science, was we were just talking about the other, the redshift theory. In fact, what scientists are discovering is that the universe is expanding, but expanding even faster and faster as it goes. Right? It's speeding up. Each, each, universe, each galaxy, each planet is expanding faster and faster away from each other. It's not slowing down to crunch. It exploded and it's still going. It's going faster and faster. Nobody knows why it's going faster and faster. There is absolutely, here's the thing, there's absolutely no shred of evidence for these theories. No shred of evidence for other universes. No matter how fun it is to think about, you know, infinite number of possibilities. There's a possibility where I am George Washington. That's cool to think about. But there's no evidence for it. And we agreed to follow the evidence, didn't we? See, both of these theories, the lucky us hypothesis, the multiverse hypothesis, are simply, really, if you think about it, faith positions with absolutely no evidence. Say, oh yeah, there's other, there's other universes, and that's why we're... What are you basing that on? Blind faith. So what do we do with all of this? I think we do what we agreed to do. We follow the evidence. Does all of this prove that the God of Christianity is the one true God and that everything in this Bible is right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't prove that. But taken together, these pieces of evidence, I think they do point to an intelligent creator. So is it crazy to believe that God actually exists? Is it simply a cop-out for unintelligent people? You know, just to say, well, where did all this start? Well, God did it. Pfft, what a cop-out. See, I think the evidence that we see in ourselves, that we see in the universe, suggests otherwise. And with all due respect, I think the evidence seems to point that the real cop-out is, well, why do we have everything? It just happened. It just happened, except that. I think that might be the real cop-out. See, now, now the difference is, I think Christianity takes this one step further. And we're going to talk about this later on, but I think Christianity takes this one step further because it gives this creator an identity. In fact, the very first words in the Jewish scriptures is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why is there something instead of nothing? There was a creator. Well, who, who's that? It's God. See, it goes even further. We actually sang about it. Christianity goes even further saying there's just, you know, this, this creator, this cold creator that created everything and then just left. No, Christianity teaches that this creator is God. And not just some God in the clouds or whatever, but a loving father who wants us to know him, wants us to love him, and to know that he loves and accepts and is for us. That he created all of this because he loves us. That he left clues for us to find because he wants us to know him and to love him. And then Christianity goes even further and says that this love was proven by God becoming a human, Jesus. But we're going to get to that later. Stay tuned. So for now, just give me this. Maybe there is more to Christianity than those crazies that we've seen shouting about Genesis and the Bible and all of that. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe there actually are rational reasons to believe that there is some type of creator. Maybe it's not just chance. Maybe you existing, who you are right now, isn't just lucky you. Maybe it's part of something bigger. Maybe it's part of something better than you thought in the first place. So you could chalk it up all to chance. Say, you know, that's great. But I think chalking it up to chance really takes more blind faith than coming to the logical conclusion that the evidence takes us to. Why is there something instead of nothing?
Why is it so finely tuned? Maybe, maybe this whole church thing, this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing, is not all about being emotionally convinced. But maybe true belief requires logical, rational thinking that's asked the questions and wasn't scared to look in the dark corners to find answers. So as, as, we, as we leave this, this, opening, this opening discussion, I just want to leave us all with one question. Since we all have some type of belief system, whether you've named it that or not, since we all have something we believe, what evidence supports your belief? Whether, you know, you're, say you're a Jesus follower, whether you say you're agnostic or, you know, atheist or agnostic atheist, whatever, Hindu, what evidence supports your belief? Ask that. And then do something maybe even scarier. Maybe something harder. I don't know. But if, you know, if there is no God, this is super easy. So there's nothing to be scared of. And it's not some religious thing, but I'll call it, we'll call it the skeptic's prayer. Right? And it's basically this. Just at some point, you don't have to say it out loud. Just, you can if you want. You don't have to let anybody know you did it. You're safe. Say, God, you know, I might be talking to nothing. I might be talking to ions out in space. But if you are real, like that, that dude on stage kept saying, if you are real, I don't know if any of this is real, but if you are real, will you just show me somehow this week? I think that's fair. I mean, if, if he's not real, what do you have to lose? If he is real... What do you have to gain? I don't know if you're real, but just sh- if you are, if like there's somebody hearing this, tuning in, show me this week. Put a time limit on it. Show me. Let's pray. Because I believe somebody's listening. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us enough to give us a brain that we can search for you and find you that you left clues, that you left evidence that shows us that if we follow the logic, we can find you. That you didn't just stop there, but that you showed love. Show us that. Show us you're real. Give us the courage to, to follow where the evidence leads. Thank you for making us. Amen. Hope you guys have a great week. I hope it's chock full of science and that it's more exciting than the Super Bowl. We'll see you next week.